0: Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage interject very quickly, because our listeners, th- their imaginations go wild. So everybody, she is human, a gorilla <laughs> doctor. She's not a gorilla herself. She is a human woman person that treats gorillas.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. But I think one of the motivators and the thing, things that's most wonderful about the work that we do as gorilla doctors is the fact that we are saving the lives of, of animals that are almost identical to us. So mm. um, I, I guess I would say I wear... Proudly the badge of a human great ape. We are, we're all related.
0: You are now.
2: Hi, everybody. September 24th is World Gorilla Day. And in honor of that, we are interviewing one of Rwanda's gorilla doctors. This is the second in our three-part series about Rwanda. The gorilla doctors are doing a fundraiser right now called Growing Up Gorillas. They're raising money to monitor the health and well-being of the 166 gorilla infants that are across Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. We hope that you loved today's interview as much as we did. And if you're interested in making a contribution, the link is in the bio. We have an incredible woman on our podcast today. She is a wildlife veterinarian and her operating room is the wild open spaces of the Virunga volcanoes in Africa. She is the director of the Gorilla Doctors and the executive director of the Karen C. Dreier Wildlife Health Center at UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She has dedicated her life to the well-being of wildlife and conservation of mountain gorillas and lowland gorillas. Please welcome to our podcast, Dr. Kirsten Gelardi, Gorilla Doctor.
0: Kirsten Gelardi to stage, please. Dr. Kirsten Gelardi to stage.
1: Hi, Mary Lee. Hi. Who's that person you just introduced? That's not me. <laughs> uh, I think
2: it is. I think it is. You better embrace it, lady. Because uh, okay. you you know how people ask you if you if you could ever have another career, what would it be? Mine would have been gorilla doctor if I were <laughs> smart enough and if I had gone to veterinary school, I would have been uh, doing the gorilla thing. because well, you are
1: smart enough, and um, it's never too late to go to veterinary school, as I think I told you the first time I met you, Mary Lee.
2: <laughs> Yes, when I talked your ear off at dinner, I was like, tell me more about gorillas, tell me more. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I want to start out by just asking you to explain to our listeners a little bit about what you do as a gorilla doctor, um, how you ended up in that field of work. I know that you work with many more animals than just gorillas, um, so feel free to just tell us about all the things that you do
1: for me, one of the, the motivators and the things that's most wonderful about the work that we do as gorilla doctors is the fact that we are saving the lives of, of animals that are almost identical to us. So, mm. um, I, I guess I would say I wear proudly the badge of a human great ape. You know, we, we are, we're all related. And so, um, I, I I don't know, any, I know, Mary Lee, you've had a chance to track and see the gorillas, and you know what it's like when you, um, you know, lock eyes with them in the forest. Yeah. You look at them, they look at you, and, you know, it's um, even still, it's a pretty emotional experience, and I've always described that to people, and well, I don't know how to describe it. It's one of those things that you can't really describe until you experience it, but I say, right. you know, it's almost like if you were just told you had a family member that you didn't know you had and you were meeting them for the first time. Yes. You know, that kind of. Yep. Uh, well, I, I
2: took Stephanie up this summer for the first oh, time.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah.
2: And I've been up f- four times and it's never enough for me. And every time I go up, I cry I, yes, I something <laughs> it, it hits me from the bottom of my soul and I keep trying to put into words what it is. And the, the closest I've ever come is that the the very first time I heard them speaking to each other, those low grunts, I was immediately brought back to the first moment I heard my son's heartbeat mm. and I felt like this is what, this is God. This is like the curtain has moved and we get a peek inside. But the other thing that always occurs to me when I bring friends up, You see people, they're trying to inch their way closer. They're trying to get eye contact. They're trying to connect. They're trying, trying to make a connection with these creatures. And all that occurs to me, and I think this is where the, the well of emotion starts to rise for me, is that the thing that we're so desperately trying to cling to, to attach to, to recognize in each other is the very thing that as humans, we're destroying on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. We're destroying those parts of the world and those parts of ourselves that keep us connected and remind us that we are all one. We're connected to those gorillas and the whales and the dogs, and we're connected to each other. And that's the part we forget in the busy world that we take for granted. We forget our our place.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Mary Lee. And I think, but you're touching on kind of one of the core Tenets or philosophies or perspectives we have as gorilla doctors is exactly that connection. We call it from a from a veterinary or health standpoint, we call it one health. You know, the, the fact that the health of the gorillas and the health of the people that are come into close proximity of the gorillas and the health of the forest that the gorillas live in and that the people work in are all intrinsically linked. And you really can't consider and work on the health of just one. Part, right? You have to consider it all. You have to consider the entire ecosystem. And that's really the core of the approach we take as gorilla doctors is just recognizing that we are saving lives of individual gorillas. And that is most definitely contributing to the recovery of the populations and the species as a whole but we 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 don't do that in some silo, right? we right. we're considering what what is the health of the people that come into close contact with with the gorillas. And in fact, for many, many years, um really at the it was really the vision and wisdom of my predecessor and and former colleague Dr. Mike Cranfield before he retired. but you know we we developed an, uh, essentially an occupational health program for, the workers in the park. These are the people that were going every day into the park to monitor um, the gorillas, ensure their safety, the trackers, if, and yeah, the, yeah, ensure the safety of the tourists and make sure that tourists have a really exceptional experience. And um, and then they go back to their families, where they you know, some of them live in in homes with that are you know lots of people in the home, lots of opportunity for infectious disease transmission, all of that. So um, you know, thanks to Mike's Mike Cranfield's vision, we we implemented an occupational health program for park workers as a guerrilla conservation organization, which, you know, that's really, before it was, we were even calling it One Health, we were doing it, I guess is my point.
2: So you're providing medical care for those, the trackers and the rangers and all the people in the park, and and that's extended to their family as well. So they're getting medical care. Yeah,
1: really, it was more of a preventive medicine approach, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, in Rwanda has a very exceptional national health system. So our we felt our job was to make sure that every park worker was you know seen by a physician at least once a year to check for overall wellness you know wellness exam like, you know those unfortunately not everybody in the world has the luxury of being able to go to their doctor for a wellness exam people can only go to a doctor when they really need medical care so we were uh, facilitating our, those park workers being seen by a physician to just assess their overall wellness an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure
2: the, they're susceptible to everything that we can get, right? So Ebola, or TB, or um, COVID—all of those things, gorillas can get from us. And right. I know bef- before we went up, we were required to have a COVID test mm-hmm. and and have proof of uh-huh. negative. Yeah, bef- and masks, masks? Yep, and yeah, masks. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, because for the very reason that we touched on at the very start of this conversation about how closely related we are to to gorillas and other great apes, that. That relatedness means that great apes are susceptible to human pathogens, viruses, bacteria, you know, infectious um, diseases. And so, we've um, we've shown and proven that mountain gorillas can get sick from human respiratory viruses. Um, for that reason, it's you know we've been on our our toes and just um, you know very very concerned about the pandemic and uh, naturally for many reasons, yeah. um, but certainly for you know. Worried about what it might happen for the gorillas if the virus was to be transmitted from an infected person to the gorillas. And so, mm-hmm. um, fortunately, you know, we sounded the alarm very early. Um, all of the parks that we work in and with were quick to understand that this was a threat and they instituted, um, you know, the, the very basic um, but m- most important um, precautions and that is maintain distance, wear a mask no going into the parks if you're sick. So those sort of basic, all the things yeah. that we've been doing for what, 18 months, I yeah. think that the park was was already doing prior yeah. to the pandemic, making sure that people stay a certain distance away from the gorillas, still very close. So Knockwood, I mean, about that we've had gorillas with respiratory illness um, in the last um, several months, but the samples that we've been able to collect and test for COVID-19 have all been negative.
2: I know that you actually perform your operations in the mountains. You're not darting them and then bringing them to a facility. You're lugging all of this stuff up the mountain and going into their house and helping them. And that must be incredible. How does that even work?
1: Yeah, that's right, Mary Leah. We say our the forest is our hospital. Yeah. Um, and so yes, we're uh, our veterinarians, by the way, who are all Rwandan, Ugandan, and Congolese, we we work in all three countries, the range countries of, of mountain gorillas and their close cousins, the Grauer's gorilla. Um, our veterinarians uh, take all of the equipment and veterinary supplies that they will need um, to care for an injured or ill gorilla that is, you know, grievously injured or so sick that we have decided to Clinically intervene and treat that animal isn't um, critical for its survival, mm-hmm. um, and so everything gets taken to the forest. We use anesthetics that can be delivered by a dart. A gorilla that's been darted essentially falls asleep very, very quickly. Our veterinarians, you know, they're they're a well-oiled machine. Everybody knows their their uh, responsibility during that particular intervention gets the work done really quickly carefully but quickly and that's an opportunity to collect samples so even if if we're anesthetizing a gorilla because it's got it's been uh, caught in a snare has a snare wire Mm -hmm. rope snare around an arm or a leg or even a neck sometimes the babies get them around their necks Um, even if it's a intervention to remove a snare clean the wound give the animals antibiotics and pain relievers we'll use that as an opportunity to collect other samples because that's truly a golden opportunity to have your hands on a wild endangered animal is not an opportunity to be missed from a just general health um, surveillance standpoint so we'll collect samples during an intervention we've also developed techniques for collecting samples that can be diagnostic collecting a fresh fecal sample from the forest could tell us a lot about what's going in, on in the population and that's been one of our go-to methods for gorillas in the last several months we've had respiratory illness outbreaks because we've optimized um, some assays for detecting human respiratory um, infections or viruses in fresh fecal samples from gorillas. Mm. So mm-hmm. we can't always, you know, commonly, I don't, Mary Lee, you may have seen this and Stephanie, when you went there, but, you know, gorillas actually make these, what we call night nests. They'll, they'll find a place on the forest floor or up in the, you know, in the low branches of a tree to sleep for the night. And they all sleep together in one, big, happy family. And uh, before they move off to start feeding, they'll often defecate. And that, so those are fresh samples that can be very helpful um, from a diagnostic standpoint.
0: When I was up in the mountains um, and having that great privilege and experiencing it with my husband to witness this family grouping, I forget the the cultural name, but the family that they call special, was it Mm. Akasha? Is that how they say it, Mary Lee? Do you know? I can't remember. Like I'll my, have to look that up. My Kenyan wandan is terrible. Mine's not good either. <laughs> um, but you know, I was so focused on the silverback, and my husband captured incredible pictures of a mama grouping, and the mama was holding an infant. We later found out probably a week old, mm-hmm. but the the relaxation of the limbs, at first with the untrained eye, we thought. How beautiful that this baby can just let it all relax. And then we showed our our trekker, Claude, and he said, oh, no, I'm not sure. I don't think that little infant is still alive. And they took my husband's images, mm -hmm, sent it to the doctor. The doctor then went and found the family grouping. And sure enough, the little one had passed. And we all just, we really collapsed and subsequently getting pictures of, you know the the mama with literally her her hands on her head in yeah. angst and the wow. other mothers grouping around and i read an article that you had written several years ago and that some of well a lot of your training is um sort of looking at the mortality rate of infants and that trauma seems to be the number one reason. Mm. Can you speak a little bit about that? Is it the snares or is it perhaps a silverback that enters a family and then doesn't want these little ones in his family grouping? Uh, I don't know very much about it, but I'd love to learn more.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, First of all, I'm sorry that that was your experience. (sighs) It had to have been just heartbreaking and it is heartbreaking for all of our staff when they are having to deal with a a death of any gorilla. (laughs) Let me tell you a silverback to infant, newborn infant. And it's, um, but there's, you know, a certain amount of mortality in the population is normal. Right. Um, but still we, you know, we, and any death is something we take very seriously. And if we can, um, get retrieve the carcass and we'll do what we call a postmortem exam to see, you know, learn as much as we can about what might've caused the death of that animal whether it was an infant or or an adult male um you know you touched on the mom still holding her dead infant and that just another example of how we can identify (laughs) with Mm -hmm. yeah grief that may be being felt by that animal but also that uh, the rest of the family being you know part of that experience for the mother grouping around her happening i wasn't there but i know exactly what you're describing um you know, sometimes the moms will carry their dead infants for a long time. You are right that um, the number one cause of deaths of infants are silverbacks who, who may come in and take over a group. Um, so they become the lead silverback and it's in their interest from a genetic standpoint to um, make sure that all the infants that he is going to be protecting in the future in that group are his. And um, is it
2: male and- or female? He'll kill male or female babies?
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And do the mothers, because they have such, you know, deep feelings, which is so clear, do they then, uh, leave the group or are they angry with him for?
1: Uh, no, it's, it's, you know, so it's, that's their natural social, um, behaviors. they their the sociobiology of, of these animals is, um, one that's, very, very structured around a lead male um, and several females and their offspring. And that Mm -hmm. is a gorilla family, and that's what the females are, you know, that's just part of their fabric of their life. I'll probably
2: get the numbers wrong, so please clarify for me. But I know that, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there were not very many mountain gorillas left on the face of the earth. And now we're up to like 1,300 or 1,400.
1: Yeah, no, the official count is 1,063 mountain gorillas in the world. Um, That number keeps going. So every few years, there's a census done, you know, across the range of the mountain gorilla. And fortunately, every time the census is performed and um, the scientists crunch all of the data collected during the census, that number keeps going up. It's the only great ape whose numbers in the wild are increasing, which is very sobering to consider. The only great ape whose numbers in the wild are increasing. And it's because they all live in national parks, so they're well protected. Mm -hmm. The majority of them are habituated to the close presence of people. So they can be, every individual can be monitored, their health can be monitored, their safety can be monitored. Um, and that, in fact, there's a you know, scientific paper published, gosh, already 10 years ago now, that sort of tried to sort through all the different factors that could explain why mountain gorillas are, um, the only great apis numbers are increasing in the wild. And, um, and the paper was called Extreme Conservation. And that's because that's what it's taken to bring mm-hmm. this animal back from, the brink of extinction, really. I mean, when Fossey, Diane Fossey was studying the gorillas in the in the 70s and 80s, they were thought to be about 250. So, gosh, so yeah. the numbers keep going up. And it, and it, as it turns out, that paper I, I referenced that was published 10 years ago, when they crunched all the data, it they discovered that it was the veterinary care provided by gorilla doctors that could account for or explain half of the annual population growth rate. So, for example, a, a female infant. Um, one or two or three years old, infants are much more likely to get caught in snares. They're just like kids, they are playful, they're curious, <laughs> they get into trouble. You know, If a young female were to be caught in a snare and for, for whatever reason, if she were to, to succumb to that and not have sort of a lifetime ahead of her may, of making gorilla babies, um, yeah. there are so few wildlife conservation success stories um, mm-hmm. in the world, um, honestly. It's, it's really what keeps me going, to be honest. I mean it's such a privilege to be able to be part of an organization that is make, truly making a difference for us, the survival of the species. And I know that you don't only work
2: with gorillas. What other conservation efforts do you have going now? Something with yeah, killer I mean, whales too, um, I think,
1: right? Right. So the Gorilla Doctors is um, near and dear to my heart and uh, takes up much of my time, but I, uh, you mentioned in my introduction, thank you, that I also direct the Karen C. Dreyer Wildlife Health Center at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, the Wildlife Health Center is essentially a research service and teaching unit within the school, and we administer many different programs and projects focused on wildlife health and conservation. As an example, uh, we're responsible for all of the wildlife Rescue and care in the event of an oil spill in California, Ugh. both offshore but also now on on land. So we've at times been caring for hundreds of seabirds, and that that whole process we do in very close collaboration with our state wildlife agency. But we're we're responsible for getting those those oiled b- birds and and sometimes marine mammals out of the environment into care centers where they can be nourished and hydrated, cleaned. Yes fed up and then released. Um, so that's, that's a huge operation when there, when there's a spill, it's an all hands on deck kind of situation.
0: You talked about extreme conservation <laughs> and I can understand seeing those fruits of your labor and results in an area that's contained when you speak of the ocean. I mean, what steps can we even take to move forward in extreme conservation? Because yeah. talk about boundaries and borderlines that, There are none when you're under the water, but there's got to be something that we can do to, you know, besides signing all the petitions and calling, uh, you know, the heads of Congress and Senate and say, please do something. Do you see any movement toward a positive result? You know, what actionable items can we take to Just, just as the average citizen? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, Stephanie, I feel like you were in my brain, uh, what a, what would it have been 18 years ago, because I was I was having the same sort of desperate need to act as a veterinarian. I have a lot of colleagues that just do an amazing job, re, for example, rehabilitating marine mammals, seals, sea lions, cetaceans, whales, and dolphins. And, and, you know, from a veterinary standpoint, again, the opportunity to help individual animals, Um, especially when their illness or injury might be human induced is a a true privilege. And it is a very important role for wildlife veterinarians, not to say I'm completely free of despair about the future of our ocean, but I really felt the need to act. And so I started a program here in California called the California lost fishing gear recovery project. And this is me, a wildlife veterinarian deciding that where I really wanted to put a ton of energy was to, to get lost, abandoned, discarded fishing gear, we're talking nets, traps, pots, out of the ocean, get them out of there so that they're not posing a risk or a hazard to marine wildlife. And I I was inspired in part right before and then during veterinary school, I had the opportunity to spend summers out on Midway Atoll, which is a island way out in the middle of the Pacific. It's part of the Northwestern Hawaiian Island chain uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles from the main Hawaiian islands. Anyway, saw firsthand how much garbage just watches up on the beach of what should be a pristine island in the middle of the Pacific. Just to see that stuff washing up on the beach and seeing Hawaiian monk seals, which are an endangered species of seal endemic to our country lying on a beach next to a shampoo bottle or a child's flip-flop sandal or a plastic doll or whatever. And so, you know, I just knew inside we shouldn't be doing this to the ocean. And so I Think that's where the nidus of my drive to do something about the problem of fishing gear in the ocean came from. I was inspired by work they were doing. The state of Hawaii and our and our government were investing a lot in going out to all of those Hawaii, Northwestern Hawaiian Island chains that are part of a national wildlife refuge, incredibly important habitat for, for seabirds and for Hawaiian monk seals. And they were actually using divers to remove nets that had washed in from the North Pacific and caught on the coral reefs fringing these islands. And so I was inspired by that. I was inspired by a program up in Washington state where they were working with commercial fishermen um, who were divers actually have those guys or gals in the water Removing lost and abandoned crab pots and nets. So I started a program here in California. I, I work with a group of commercial fishermen who are just just amazing in their work underwater, and we've uh, we've recovered hundreds and hundreds of nets, thousands of pots and traps. And um, even just a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of why I started the program and why I keep it going. Our team was out uh, recovering gear and pulled up a you know mm-hmm. lost lobster trap, and there was a drowned cormorant seabird in the trap so it clearly gone in to get something in the trap you know because cormorants dive and go underwater and it couldn't get out fly underwater and and feed and catch fish to eat and it it couldn't get out so i was like that's why i'm still working in this program how was the
2: program funded
1: uh, the the California Lost Fishing Gear Recovery Project is over the years been funded from all kinds of sources. Um, so
2: donations would be accepted. Uh,
1: donations, yes, um, and grants. We will be putting and, a link up for uh, that for thank sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. No. Um. At, we've been fortunate to be able to apply for a lot of grants that supported the work over time. So state grants and federal grants too. So.
2: So I know that you uh, are married and have children. Mm-hmm. Uh, are your children drawn to the
1: same area? And I'm not sure what your husband does. I think he's in conservation as well. My husband, uh, James Gillardi, is the executive director of World Parrot Trust. It's a parrot welfare and um, conservation organization that works operates globally. He runs it from a home office here. His organization supports facilitates projects around the world that are this. You know, it's the most endangered order of birds are mm-hmm. the are the parrots and it's for good reason right they're amazing animals and so they've were hit hard over over many decades uh for the trade in wildlife people wanted them for pets he's in conservation and my children are not but they're big <laughs> lovers of animals
2: <laughs> did they travel with you a lot when they were little and go to see the gorillas and and help you with the wildlife yeah and so, uh, and-
1: if you can believe it my family has not been over to see the gorillas with me yet. Ah. That will change. Um, but they, you know, we, uh, we traveled a lot when they were children. I think my husband and I just both felt that it was really important to get them out to see other, the ways others live um, in the world.
2: Maybe you can help me with something that I really struggle with, and it's zoos. So, I, I never took my son to zoos. and never took him to circuses, certainly. Um, I mean, remember once when he was in like first grade, the teacher announced they're going to a zoo, and my son stood up and says, I don't go to zoos, you know. <laughs> and so, um, I really, really struggle with zoos when people put up those, oh, they're so cute videos of the orangutans coming to see the baby and, you know, the human baby on the other side of the mirror. To me, it's like we have imprisoned intelligent beings for no reason for the rest of their life mm-hmm. if zoos could be monitored where they were only wounded animals that could not survive in the wild then i'd be on board but i don't know if that is the case or if it is the case if it's even monitored so i really struggle with this because i know there are some zoos like you're you work with the san diego zoo is that correct uh, yeah, our, we, our school um, has a very close partnership with the San Diego Zoo. So yeah. I know there are some zoos that do good things, but can you, can you explain how I can have better feelings about it
1: <laughs> in my world? Well, first of all, yeah, I mean, I totally accept and acknowledge everybody has, has their opinion about zoos and I, I get where you're, where you're coming from. I think I feel that zoos have, play a really important role um, in our society from an equity or inclusion standpoint, when you think about the fact that most people in our country don't have the opportunity to see animals in the wild and that the only time they might be able to see an animal that's not their pet is in a zoo. The only time they might be able to have the opportunity to learn about that species and the perils it faces in the wild to gain for themselves a deep- interest Or appreciation or curiosity or connection with that animal, that species. But and to me, that's putting
2: that's putting a, a human's curiosity above the need for freedom over yeah, another
1: creature. I, yeah, I understand you saying that. Although I think, I mean, let's be honest: humans ha- have to be the ones driving the solutions for for wildlife in the wild, right? So we're not going to do a better job with wildlife conservation if we don't have resources and the motivation and the drive and the passion in the population for that as a goal. We can't assume that everybody is going to have an intrinsic, deep, abiding trust and faith in the value of biodiversity if people people can't see it with their own eyes. And so Mm -hmm. I feel that there is a role for animals and zoos as ambassadors for their species and for the places where those species live. And it is often the only place that People, especially children um, in cities, may ever get to actually even see with their own eyes what does an elephant look like? What's a giraffe look like? What's a zebra look like? What's a lion look like? It's like, wow, it's a real animal. It's not just something that I saw in the last Disney movie, it's a real animal. And that's an opportunity for them to really have their eyes open to what is facing wildlife. Let's also not forget that it's where a lot of really important science and knowledge has come from about some of these species. So long before people, you know, organizations like mine were out in the wild treating animals in the wild, we were learning a lot about these species because we could study them in captivity.
0: Back in 2017, I read that you and a group of other scientists had found in bats, the COVID is that Correct. Not necessarily, maybe the same strain or understanding of the disease and uh, the infection as we do now, but it certainly was on your radar three years prior before it manifested itself.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure which paper you're referring to. We didn't find the COVID-19 virus per se, but for 10 plus years, our One Health Institute at the veterinary school was running a U.S aid funded project called the emerging pandemic threats predict project and we were working with partners all over the world 30 plus countries humanely safely collecting samples from bats and primates and rodents to screen for known but also novel what we call novel viruses viruses that had never before been described and we Detected hundreds of new viruses, many of them coronaviruses. We've not checked the COVID-19 virus, but but the point is that we we sort of showed with that project not only are these viruses that have the potential to become human pandemics circulating in wildlife, but it's you know the other goal of that project was really to better understand okay what are the circumstances under which sometimes these viruses come out of those wildlife reservoirs and infect human communities, you know, how much of it is related to the fact that, you know, we are removing degrading forests where these, these animals are live naturally, mm-hmm. right? We're, so we're, we're doing things that bring people into close contact with wildlife. I mean, we're hunting wildlife, bringing them into markets where mm-hmm. people have, you know, close contact with live, but also dead wild animals that are being Mm -hmm. sold for consumption so there are lots of things we're doing as humans that really increase that risk you know we did so much work with our partners in those countries for the whole human community to be able to detect those pathogens and wildlife but to really um, have the ability to do that quickly to get the the word out to everybody who needs to know about an emergence event and then start the process for response
0: okay time for the five questions
2: What would you tell your teenage self if you could go back and talk to her?
1: Okay, so here's what I tell young people who are going into my profession, who want to, who are have an interest in wildlife and conservation. And what I always end up telling them, and so I guess I wished I could have told my teenage self this, is that there are many routes to success in life and to achieving the goals that one wants in life, whether those are professional or personal, I think remaining open to opportunities and just taking them when they're in front of you, maybe without knowing where it might lead, is really important. And I, I worry, I, I see a lot of young people really anxious about feeling like they gotta figure out the secret. You know, what is the secret path? Please tell me. It's like, there's no secret. You, you need to be a great person, you need to work hard, you need to be a team member, and you need to just take advantage of opportunities. One of our mottos on this show is just say yes.
2: Just say yes.
1: Say <laughs> yes. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Do
0: you have um, any sort of good luck charm or ritual when you're about to embark on something big in your life? Oh,
1: you know, I don't. Um, I <laughs> the closest thing I have to that is I carry in my purse this stone I found on the beach in Baja California that is heavy and so smooth and it's just beautifully polished and it just feels good in your hand. And I carry mm-hmm. that in my purse because sometimes I just want to hold it because it mm-hmm. feels good. It grounds you. It, it grounds me for some weird reason. It's cool. It's, yeah,
0: it's very it. on TV. I'd
1: show it to you and you'd know what i'm talking about (laughs) and if i next time i get to see you in person i'll let you hold my rock oh i can't wait
0: people pick up
2: your purse and go what the heck do you have you you have rocks in your purse (laughs) i'm telling you that rock must have good mojo so i would like to hold that rock one time (laughs) suck up some some of your brilliance um okay tell us something about yourself that people would find surprising
1: maybe um uh, you know, I have plenty of a secret what I would call vices that I don't. <laughs> come on, come on,
2: <laughs> <Okay>. just one.
1: <laughs> uh, I I can spend hours on YouTube watching my favorite musicians in concert. I like nothing more than to peruse real estate websites to just think about, <laughs> oh, what would it be like to own that house or that ranch or that piece of land? Oh yeah. Uh, it, I, My guilty food pleasure is croutons on my (laughs) salad. Let's see.
0: That's pretty great. Kind right. of, Guilty pleasures,
2: croutons. We asked for one and you gave us a whole confessional. So, okay. I, I think we I can see where I, the rest of this interview is going. I, I, didn't well, realize I think when anybody
0: meets you and they don't know your background, if they were to say, oh, and, and what line of work do you do? Just saying I'm a gorilla doctor is pretty surprising <laughs> to people, I would think. True, true. Okay, if you were to have any um, special skill It could be, you know, otherworldly, it could be an instrument, what would it be?
1: Oh, okay, at this moment, and this is also is a reflection of my own by beating myself up for not having um, gained the skill because I have all the tools at my disposal. I really would like to be able to knit socks. (laughs) And I I decided that it would be a, a pandemic activity uh-huh. And I've got the circular needles and my, my husband gave them to me for my birthday. and more How's it going? Me, How's it more importantly. my mother-in-law is a master. she's a, an extraordinary knitter. She comes from the Shetland Islands where you know, everybody's knitting before they're born practically. And uh, so I've had all the opportunity in front of me. I haven't taken it. but um, I would just love to be able to knit socks.
0: Socks are not as easy as people think though. Start like, I, I would have yeah, to do like a heel holder or something like yeah. a little square, but the full on sock is not an easy go. Yeah, and it's huh? the
1: circular needle. I don't know, I, I yeah. can't, I haven't I have I haven't had the courage, I guess. That's why it's a skill I want because-
2: Just say yes. Say yes, just pick up the needles. All right, last question. And this is this is a tough one, so clear your mind. Uh, if you were a nail polish color, what color would you be? And what would the cheeky little name be? (laughs)
1: Uh, I would be some shade of ocean blue. Mm -hmm. Um, And let me come up with a creative name. It would be um, something like rocks in your socks. Rocks, rocks in her purse. Oh, that's a good one. Rocks in my socks. Rocks. Coat polish. A toenail polish color. Rocks in my socks.
0: I love very it. Very cute. Yeah, <laughs> I buy rocks in my socks. <laughs>
1: Thanks for that, Mary Lee. You came I think up we
0: with we need to <laughs> trademark
2: that. No, come on, you can come up with one on oh, your gosh, own. gosh, you
1: just got got a. You've just touched on one of my uh, skills I don't have, which is a lot of creativity. Not like you two, who have been artists all, your uh, your whole life. Uh,
2: can you just give us one example of maybe an experience you had with some wildlife where you felt like there was real, true communication that happened that actually kind of rocked you back and hit oh, you on the soul. It was the-
1: very first moment I ever saw a mountain gorilla in the wild I mean Mm -hmm. came was on a trail you know on a sort of cleared area walking up towards the gorillas I was just like full of anticipation to see them for the first time it was we came around a corner and there was the silverback just sitting and you know looked at him and he looked up and looked at me and we locked eyes and I just was that was it. <laughs> that was it. Never. I've never felt that with an animal before. And I, I think I've, you know, I've had some pretty extraordinary times, um, up, you know, being able to be in close proximity of, of whales and dolphins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and even had the chance to be in the water when I were, was out on Midway Atoll could get in the water with spinner dolphins, which is incredible. Oh my uh, God. I'm so jealous. Yeah, definitely, Please <laughs> take me with you. I have like to be your best friend. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. A, you know, those are incredibly intelligent social animals that are also living the dream to be with your family, um, in the ocean, but what more can anyone want? At least that's for me, um, the ocean is my sole place. So,
2: <laughs> so amazing. It's so, I just, it's really hard for me always to put into words the connection that I feel with animals. I tend to like most animals more than most people mm-hmm. and I just feel like especially when I'm with the gorillas that they know things and mm-hmm. that they almost look at us with patience, like, Oh, you poor, silly fool, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I love what you do. I'm so grateful for what you do. I wish the world had more people like you who tried to save animals and oh, make well, thank it you. safer it and
1: Stephanie and right back at you too. I appreciate everything that you do and my very best to your human families and to your animal families and yes. to yours. Thank you. Yep.
2: And now here's what struck a chord with us. I mean, that's that's an amazing person. She dedicates her life to making the world a better place. Like, doesn't just say it, but actually does it. And I mean it when I say, like, if I had been a very smart student, and because I did want to be a vet when I was a little kid, oh my gosh, I would have totally done her job if I could Ugh. start over.
0: I sat here in awe and was completely intimidated by her. I think I only had two comments for the whole interview because it was like watching a master do their craft in a language that I don't speak. So I just thought, you know what, Steph, why don't you just pay attention, learn as much as you can, as opposed to commenting on something you don't really know about. I did feel, um, your hurt and your questioning of the zoos—I mm. loved her answer. I'm kind of middle of the fence, right? I do believe there are, there's something to be learned uh, by children and adults watching animals and learning from them. But I can hear your point of view as well—that they should be free. You and I have discussed that. You know, we're on board with humanity. You and I love humanity. We just sometimes question humans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think when you and I were there with the apes in the mountains of Rwanda, that spoke to me in the sense that watching them, you see their truth in their eyes and in their actions. They have agendas. Mm-hmm. I think the gorilla family has a hierarchy and an agenda, but there is no manipulation. Mm-hmm. They're just doing what they know to be right Mm -hmm. for their family unit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's difficult to watch that circle of life, right? Because we in our human and quote unquote evolved selves say, oh, that shouldn't happen. But for the wild kingdom, they're each playing their role perfectly and accordingly to what makes it work for the health of the entire United Uh, animal kingdom. They all work together for the greater good. And that's the humanity that you and I really are attuned to. It's something to behold and her understanding of that and her understanding of how the whole ecosystem works. That's why I just was like, if I speak up, it's going to be really for my own benefit. So why don't I just sit back, listen and learn? And I certainly did learn.
2: So just to bring this around to the country of Rwanda and how much they've done in, in order to preserve the gorilla population and to, and to literally help bring it back from extinction for every person that goes up a portion of the fee that they pay goes to each of the small communities that live at the base of the volcano. So that they can have little restaurants, have little gift shops. So it employs uh, people that help you, you know, hike up the side of the mountain and uh, the gorilla uh, guards, because there are literally men and women that live on that mountain and guard the gorillas so that they can't get poached. So in doing this, so in giving a little bit of money to, to the communities that live around the volcanoes, they're inspiring the people to help care about the gorillas because it's part of their livelihood the other really interesting program that they installed was they found some of the people that were poachers. Now the poachers are killing, right? Because they need to feed their families. You know, they found these poachers and they hired them to now guard the gorillas. So, you know, they know the mountains, they know the jungles and they say, look, now we're gonna pay you to take care of the animal that you were poaching. And so it's it's just genius. It's brilliant. So the price to go up is high, but it does so much good. And between the government's progressive values and the guerrilla doctor's dedication, it's incredible what they've been able to do to bring this. Creature back from literally the brink of extinction. I was also
0: inspired to do more, you know, for the world. Of course, we recycle. Of course, I'm constantly conscious of: is this waste? Can I make sure I have, you know, bags in the back of my car? Can I uh, streamline anything to make sure that it's better for the environment? but I wanna do more. Um, well, because purchase power speaks, where, where right. you spend your money speaks. And
2: you know. so now I know they're making um, six pack tops out of fish food instead of out of right. plastic. Right. So if you spent the extra 25 cents or even a dollar that speaks, that says something. Or if yeah. you buy your water in the box instead of a
0: plastic container, That's things right. like that. Or anything that says, you know, this was made from recyclable items, right. that if it's 25 cents more and you have that uh, money available to you, oh boy, do we encourage you to do that. Yeah. All right, my friend. All right, my friend. Thank I'm gonna you for go, that interview. I'm going to go talk to the goats now.
2: Oh man. <laughs> I'm going to go commune with my goats. <laughs> See you later
0: So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe,
2: and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. We'd like to give a big thank you to our assistant editor and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Ben Walding, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media
0: expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.